0: I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself Spinning in circles and talking to myself Welcome to a new spin on autism Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted And four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is the news spin on Autism Answers. I am Lynette Louise, your story teacher host also known as the Brain Broad. In fact, more and more often, mostly known as the Brain Broad. So welcome to the show today. We're going to have a special... uh, Actually, we're going to have a special couple shows. So all our shows are special, but this one I think you want to lend an ear to. We are going to listen, well, to a lady in a very special circumstance. So how this all came about is... I was reading a post. Um, Actually what happened was my daughter said you have to read this and she sent me a link and so I followed the link because my daughter knows everything about me and exactly what it would interest me. And I followed the link and from that moment forward was permanently changed. Um, You know sometimes you read a story or a blog post and, and you Go, oh, that's interesting, or wow, neat opinion, and you just sort of you take it in a little piece at a time. Keep your own your own opinions, and maybe right way over on the edges, you get changed a teensy, teensy bit, and that's how learning usually is, just a teensy, teensy bit at a time. But every once in a while, somebody really hits you with a sledgehammer and says, "Hey, here I am being frank and honest, and this is this is what's up." And it gets you right in the solar plexus and you go, oh wow, I am, I'm in a different place and forever. So the post is entitled, So I'm Dying Again. Warning, this post is not autism related, more of a heads up. And then she goes on to talk about her journey and her issues. Now, I'm really excited. That the author, Richelle, who in her post goes by Portia, um, has been so kindly willing to to speak with us since she's in the middle of so much difficulty. And um, we're going to keep it light, people, because that's who we are, but we're also going to be honest and clear. So uh, Portia writes under the name of Portia, or Rochelle writes under the name of Portia, and it's really cool because it's Portia, Brutus, and Cassius. That's how she represents her family, which I totally love, and, and in her post she says, "In Why Portia, Brutus, and Cassius? In an ongoing effort to protect our family's more sensitive information, particularly when it comes to our journey with autism, we've decided to start using cleverly selected pen names. I love that. First of all, I love the sentence, cleverly selected pen names. But I I love that they chose Shakespeare, that they're going to be clear and honest, but that they're asking for respect and privacy, and I'm going to ask the same of you. If you happen to know this guest, be kind, be respectful, you know, let her have her journey. She's going to share a piece of it with you now, okay? Um, All right, Rochelle, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: I am um, very excited to... Um, Share our story. Um, You know. Well,
0: first, uh, first, I have a question. I'm I'm going to jump right in and ask you a question. So you you chose Portia, Brutus, and Cassius for your pen name. Sure. But Rochelle's kind of um, an interesting name. It's different. So what's the origin of that?
1: Well, it's actually a very funny story. Um, I was never supposed to be uh, named. Rochelle, Um, I was supposed to be named Marissa, which would have been a terrible name for me because I, every Marissa, no offense to any Marissas out there, every Marissa I've ever met has been very um, sophisticated and classy, and I am none of those things. (laughs) I am the polar opposite of any Marissa you've ever met, so had I been name Marissa, I would have probably had a just really confusing life as people would not understand me. But what happened was when I was born, um, my dad was very, very, very drunk the night I got born, and um, so when he went to fill out the paperwork, he... In his drunken stupor decided that it would be fun to name me after his first girlfriend, whose oh. name was Rochelle, and after his favorite band, which was a band from Georgia. Many of you know is R-E-M. Oh so my God. initials are R-E-M, and then um, he did not know how to spell the name Rochelle, and so he spelled it very horribly. So most people have no idea how to pronounce my name. Automated systems call me (laughs) Raquelie. Fellow nurses have called called me Raquelie. I've been called, like, there are so many variants on my name. It is is very, very ridiculous. And the funny part is um, he did not have the um, bravery to... Tell my mother what he had done, <laughs> and this is you know in the eighties. So when you had a baby in the eighties, it wasn't this. You know, you have a baby and then you're out of the hospital in twenty four hours. They kept you for two or three days. So for two or three days, my mother was calling me Marissa, and oh my goodness. When they went to leave, she asked the nurse, "Can you please go get Marissa for me?" And the nurse was like, "Who's that?" And she's like my daughter, and the nurse was like,
0: "Your daughter's no,
1: name?" No, not so much. <laughs> and so basically, at that point, my dad, who was you know had gone to get the car, came in with a with came in and was like, "Um, you know, she's looking at the birth certificate. And She's like, Rochelle. Like well, that's really pretty. I how do you how do you pronounce it?" Like, she couldn't pronounce it. And he's like, oh, it's Rochelle, and he, and she's like, well, that's actually really pretty. That wasn't even on our list. But um, when were you gonna tell me? And <laughs> and at what point? Like, like, and and who? Like, where did you get this idea? Like, like, like. And then he had to tell her, well. It was my first girlfriend because that was not my mother's name. And my mother was not his (laughs) first birthday. And (laughs) she was (laughs) so mad. She was so mad. And so it's actually a very, it's actually kind of a funny story. And it it has um, been interesting because it's kind of been an ongoing reflection of, from that moment on, I think my life was set up to be, somewhat of a story that is always funny even when it's not funny it's funny um and I think that even when things get really 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 tough um somehow some way there's a, there's just something comical about the way that I view the world and the way that Things seem to happen to me. Um, You know, a lot of my friends say I should have my own reality TV show just because the most random and strange things tend to happen to me all all the time. It's just, it's crazy. But lately, um, you know, briefly for those of you who have not um, been to my website, my website, our website, um, I started our website um, based. Basically, I started it as a blog um, to blog my way through my son's diagnosis with autism. And what started off as a blog has really kind of evolved um, because your journey as a parent of a special needs child, go, you go through different phases. And it takes a while to get to a phase of acceptance and a phase of, neuro, of neurodiversity, and I know these are pretty complicated and complex and really deep, heavy con, you know, concepts to talk about, but this journey that we all embark on, um, you know, we tend to stop at different places and, and stay in certain phases for a while, and I found, because I've always had kind of a humorous look on on life in general, I found that I feel like it's unnecessary uh, sometimes for us to get stuck in some of the harder parts. Mm -hmm. And so my focus began on trying to help other parents pull through the harder parts of this process and get to the fun parts. Because when you have a child with autism, there are a lot of fun parts to it. And really and truly, there are some days where the bad outweighs the good, but in almost every child that I've met that is on the spectrum, the good outweighs the bad, even on the hardest of days. And sometimes it's just really easy to focus on those harder times.
0: Right.
1: Um, and, right. you know, my family has had more than, more than its share of those those hard days. But I, I really want to focus um kind of on, on on helping parents get through the hard days and help them focus on the good days. And the reason, you know, I the reason this is important to me is because my days are very limited and that's what the post was about. Um I have a interesting and unique um one in a million. I'm like the only person on the planet that has my medical history, which makes things very complex. Um, and my doctors really don't know what to do with me. I was initially put on, di- I, I, you know, I'm, right now I'm 32 years old, which mm-hmm. I I just celebrated my fourth birthday. That sounds strange, but it's the fourth birthday that I should not have had. So instead of celebrating birthday number 32, I celebrated – Birthday number four, like because it's such a gift. It's more than thirty-two years. It's four years more than I ever should have been given. I um, was initially put on uh, put on hospice in March of two thousand and ten, and I was told at that time I was getting, I was able to get and maintain. Um, between 30 and 130 calories a day. Now, I'm a registered nurse by trade, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously I haven't worked in several years, but I can tell you from my experience as a as a nurse and as a patient and as a human that people don't survive very long on that little nutrition. And that number that I'm giving you included the IV uh, nutrition that I was unable to tolerate, but we still pushed it anyway, as well as a few calories if, they, if there's certain IV, IV solutions that have glucose in them, mm-hmm. and so they also have a few calories. So those, the higher numbers, the number getting 130 calories, were very few and far between. My typical cal- caloric intake for almost 28 months was about 30 calories a day, realistically. I had within three months of you know all of this, you know, trying different tube feeds and nothing. I could not keep anything down. I was literally dry heaving um, around the clock. Um, my doctors and they don't were know what certain. It is? Well, it was uh, yeah, they did. Um, I had a rare um, kind of lymphoma that spread all throughout my abdomen, and then in an attempt to cut out the, basically what happened is in January of 2010, we attempted to cut out the lymphoma. In doing so, we removed 100% of my stomach, we removed 200 centimeters of my small intestine, my spleen, we removed a piece of my pancreas, a piece of my liver, my gallbladder, and that's all. So we removed basically anything and everything (laughs) we could. And then they had to hook all that back up so that I, we, knew, we knew postoperatively that I would be, tube feet, I would be on tube feeds. So they placed a feeding tube. And in order to hook all that up, see, your liver and your pancreas have ducts in normal anatomy that provide enzymes to help break up nutrition. So right. when they removed my stomach, they had to hook all that back up. And in doing so, they put a Y in my intestines. And what, what turns out what had happened is the when they put the Y in my intestines the short limb of the Y mm-hmm. got put in backwards. Oh my. So what happened was when we woke up from when I woke up from surgery, um, you know they the, the, they believed that I should be able that I should have been able to hydrate myself by mouth. So you know they were starting to give me ice chips and I couldn't even keep an ice chip down like not even one ice chip. And initially, I assumed, along with my medical team, that it was, you know, just a reaction to the anesthesia, because some people wake up from anesthesia really nauseated. But after seven or ten days um, of not even being able to turn the tube, as soon as we would turn the tube feed machine on, I would immediately start dry heaving. And the good news is, is I was kind of, is I was a bigger girl. So you won't hear that very often, but being fat saved my life.
0: <laughs> Actually you well, know it's my, I, interesting, when my dad uh died of cancer, my mom spent a lot of time going, if only he hadn't been so proud of being thin, we'd have had him longer. So the concept well, been I'm, around for I'm me from
1: sorry a I'm sorry about that. Um sorry about your loss. That's awful. And sorry.
0: No, it's all right. I'm I'm just saying that I know that
1: for my mom, she
0: kept focused on that, too, because it really is a reality. If you have more body fat to live off for a while, it can... Then you can can live
1: for a while, right? And that's the only thing, like anatomically and medically speaking, from a professional perspective, that's the only thing that makes any sort of sense to me as to how I survived as long as I did, on that little nutrition because on the day of my surgery at five foot four, which is my height, I weighed 240 pounds, which is embarrassing, but I was a night shift nurse and all I ate was Wendy's. I, I'm not even going to lie. I, 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 I was, yeah, I was terrible. I was the nurse that was telling you, you need to be healthy and not doing it myself. Right. right. So anyway, um, but so with you an did a diet.
0: Okay, so you didn't die in 2010, but you also had a similar where you thought you were going to die in 2011,
1: right? Well, basically, this was an ongoing scene. So I was initially put on hospice in January of 2010, and I stayed, and then I just stayed there in, or sorry, March of 2010. The surgery was January. By March, my kidneys had failed, my heart had failed, and my liver had failed, all from malnutrition. So when I went into multi-system organ failure in March, my my team admitted me to hospice because at that point, you know, three months down the road, we had done every test that they could think of to try to figure out why I couldn't tolerate the tube feed. And what they finally decided was that they had just removed too much of my small bowel and I had what's called, they they said I had um, short gut syndrome, which meant that no matter what, I was not going to be able to tolerate any nutrition through my GI tract because there just wasn't enough left to absorb any of the nutrition. And because my liver was failing, I could not have IV nutrition because IV nutrition is very hard on your liver. So that was not an option. So basically I, I starved and wasn't, and, and my doctors told me in March, you know, and told my family, you know, she's got, you know, maybe three months and I lived three months and then I lived six months. In October of 2010, it was Halloween, and I had a particularly good day. At this point, I was still able to get out of bed at least once a day. I would usually, I spent most of my time in bed because I was just so weak all the time. And, you know, I was on dialysis, too, so, I mean, that takes a lot out of you, Um, but I was just weak. And so every evening, um, I would get out of bed and usually just sit up and watch TV with my um, little boy and my husband for a few hours and then go back to bed. That was about my level of activity, you know, after being on hospice for six, seven months at this point. So Halloween night, um, this is what happened. I, um, I, I was in bed. And I suddenly was not in bed and I was on my ceiling. Now, you have to understand, my religious background is one that I'm not a very religious person. Okay. But I have, you know, and over the past, of the, over the course of the past several years, I have coded a total of eight times. And each time I had a very similar experience. I was up on the ceiling and I was looking down at myself. And I remember thinking, that I looked weird. Because if you think about it, you've never actually seen your own face. You've only seen your face in a reflection. But you've never actually seen your own face. And you certainly haven't seen the, the, the side of your face or your side profile ever. And I was laying on my side, and my husband's arm was wrapped around me. And I remember thinking... I just died. And then I noticed that my little boy was on the other side of my husband. He had come, he must have had a bad dream or something and come and crawled into bed next to David. And we had um, literally no idea um, that he was in bed with either of us. And I thought to myself, it's Halloween. I cannot die on Halloween. And then I realized after Halloween comes November, and that's holiday season. And then December, and that's holiday season. I, sa- I, I, I said, I can't die during the holidays. I'm going to ruin Christmas for Cassius forever. And I remember as soon as I thought had that thought, then it felt like somebody punched me with a baseball bat in my chest. And all of a sudden, I was back in pain and pain everywhere. And I had had um, a pulmonary embolism. Um, I gasped for air. That first breath was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. Um, Taking that breath was like taking was like filling your air. Fill, it would be like taking a breath full of sand is what it felt like, like breathing in and filling your lungs with sand. It was excruciating. And then David woke up because I wasn't breathing right because I broke up. When I took that breath, it was kind of almost a scream.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he woke up, and I was like, I just died. Call 911. And he was like, he thought I had a bad dream. He's like, you had a bad dream? And I'm like, no, Cassius, is beside you? He's like, no, he's not. He's in his room. And then I'm like, I'm, like, I'm telling Cassius, who's beside you? And I just died. Call 911 right now. And so he did. And he did not believe me. He did not believe my story until he looked over and moved some blankets around. And our little boy was in bed with us. And the only way that I could have seen that was if I was on the ceiling. Because of the way that I was laying, and my husband is twice my size, the way I could have seen him from where I was at. There's no way I would have known that Christian was in bed with us, had I not been on the ceiling. And to make the story even weirder, so while I was in the ambulance, Brutus and Cassius were following me um, in in the car on the way to the hospital. Brutus got a phone call. Um, And this is... 4.30 in the morning from somebody in our time zone who had just woken up and said, I just woke up and I had the worst dream and I just woke up and I felt an overwhelming need to call and make sure you were okay. And this is somebody that is not even a very close friend of our family. It's not like, you know, anybody that's really connected to us. But the timing of it was just really, really, really interesting.
0: Well, is this comforting so, for you? Does it make you not, because you, I mean, you've gone through this and gone through this and gone through this, and now you're looking again at um, possible. you know, maybe you'll pull through dying again. Yeah. again, yeah. So. Well,
1: I, that was my very first code. And for me, it was confusing because it went against everything that I had always, typically believed. Does that make sense? Yeah. It went against everything that I thought was real in my world. It, it changed my changed my beliefs. Okay? So I grappled with this for a while, but made the decision at that point, even though I'd been on hospice for six months, that I could not die until January the 2nd. That was the day that I was going to allow myself to die. But between that, between Halloween of 2010 and January 2nd of 2011, I, I, I just couldn't die because I didn't want to ruin the holidays for my little boy. So January comes around. I made it through. I don't know really how, but I did. By the time January came around, it had been a year since my initial surgery. Now, on the day of my surgery, I weighed 240 pounds. Um, 365 days later, I weighed 91 pounds. Wow. So I had literally lost 75% of my person practically. Um, At that point, I was still in multi-system organ failure. I was still in a lot of pain. My doctors were baffled that I was still hanging on. I was in the hospital more than I was out of the hospital. Um, And um, that was extremely hard, extremely hard on um, my husband, um, who was suddenly gone from... He's in the military, so he'd never been really a single parent before, whereas I had when he would deploy. And he went from being, you know, Mr. Tough right. military guy who didn't believe he really he was one of these he was kind of one of these people that felt that there was nothing atypical or different about Cassius. That he just needed <clears throat> better parenting. That because Cassius tends to fall on the very high end of the spectrum, although I have seen him on both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, for the most part, very high-functioning. So it can be, if you, if you don't spend a lot of time with Cassius, we've taught him enough social skills that he can interact with people, and a lot of people that meet him when he's having a good day, may not really realize that he's autistic. And so those needs and accommodations tend to get ignored for Christian. Right. Uh, so he's sorry, one of the invisible.
0: That's okay. For Cassius. Um, so he's, he's sort of that invisible challenge at times. And they yes. play to the cracks sometimes.
1: Yes. has dad, yes. dad and, got and a dad military was never... Yeah, and Dad, being you know very military, very militant, very this is the rule, had always kind of had always kind of blamed me for anything that was um, not expected of a child of at, at, at his age. Like um, you know when he's having you know a meltdown at eight, you know well you know you should have been harder on him when he was you know four or. It was always kind of my fault in a way because he because Brutus just didn't understand he just didn't understand and I knew I'll be honest with you, I knew from the time Cassius was a toddler that he was different than the other toddlers I didn't know specifically what was different or why or how, and it took me several years to figure out that i, I that he um, you know would be later diagnosed as an Aspie or on the spectrum now that they changed it. But, um, you know, I always knew. I I, I always knew, but I was always with him. And suddenly now dad is full-time dad, and I am not able to take care of, of Cassius. And I'm in bed all the time, and I'm very, very, very sick. And... I began to see some things that were very concerning um, regarding their relationship, and I thought to myself, "If I, I, I can't leave them, I can't leave them because Brutus cannot handle Brutus cannot handle Cassia. He cannot handle his issues. He cannot handle his meltdowns. I, I can't leave." And I kept waiting, I kept thinking and hoping that I would get to a point where I would have enough peace that I could let go and know that Cassius was going to be taken care of and supported, accepted, and loved. And for Brutus, Brutus had a very difficult time. Um, I, I equate it almost to, I almost equate it to somebody learning that they're only, like, a, like, an, like a very macho male, like a very macho Southern male learning that his only child and only son is gay. And having that, like, mindset and having a very hard time accepting that. Like, it was, like, the diversity side of it, it was very similar to that. Like, they were constantly fighting, um, constantly um, pushing each other's buttons. um, And I did not feel... And we don't have a, a lot of family support. That is that is a major, a major factor here. So I did not feel at the time that I could die. And I was very afraid. I was afraid. I had this overwhelming feeling that Cassius was going to need me. And so I held on. I held on, and I coded, and every time I coded, I forced myself back into that body, and every time I forced myself back into that body, it was like taking a breath of sand or being stabbed, because compressions, when they do chest compressions correctly, they break your ribs, and it's excruciating. Okay. And I hung on there. And I hung on there because I'm stubborn. And I hung on there because I'm a mother. And I knew, and I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to die. And I was angry. I was angry because I was a burden to Brutus and Cassius. You have to understand. Um, Cassius, at eight years of age, knew how to... Change changed my central line dressing, which is a big IV that is threaded into your heart. He knew how to do all of my IVs. He had all of my medications memorized. When I was in the hospital, the doctors, the residents would round first in the morning. And when they round, they round at like 5 in the morning. And when they round, you know, they're younger doctors. Mm -hmm. And they would order something, and Cassius would speak up because he had memorized all my meds, all their interactions, what they could be taken with, what they couldn't be taken with. And he would correct them. And probably, I'd say probably 85% of the time, he was right, and they were wrong. And he'd be like, she can't have that. She's on a calcium channel blocker right now to control her heart rate. And if you give her that, that's going to mess up this. And he was right. And some of the doctors would find this very offensive and would get angry about it, some of the younger ones. But the attendings, um, they actually grew to really love him. And it got to the point where they would actually um, let him, like, let him round with them on other patients. And Ah. so he kind of became a member in a weird way. He kind of became a member of the team. And they, like, my main doctors, my attending physicians that knew me and followed my case all along, they really enjoyed the interaction with Cassius. And let me tell you, when he was handling, he handled all my IVs when we were when I was at home, my ventilator settings, everything. He handled everything, tube feeds, everything. Um, so there was a period of time because we didn't have um, – we didn't have – Respite care available to us at that time, um, so there was a certain amount of hours. Um, we had we had a nurse that would come out, but she could only stay till three. My husband was working as an as a as a recruiter at the time because they couldn't have him on a ship while I was that sick, so they made him into a recruiter. And so, but being a Navy recruiter is a very busy, busy, stressful job. So sometimes he wouldn't get home till eight o'clock at night, between three o'clock. And 8 o'clock, it was like, Cassius time to take care of mom. And he this would handle is amazing. all my. And at 8 years of age, he, he, he handled my IVs. He handled my medications. He, and he knew I was dying, um, you know. And there was this ongoing, uh, my biggest fear was that one day the bus would be late. Like, because sometimes his bus would run mm-hmm. 15 or 20 minutes late, and the nurse would leave, and in those 15 or 20 minutes, I would code, and Christian, or I'm sorry, and Cassius would find me, and yeah. that was the reality that we lived with, and that was something that um, Brutus and Cassius had talked about. In fact, um, one of my codes um, actually occurred under, while, while um, during this time period while Cassius was... Um, basically taking care of me in a way. You know, I uh, started to code, and we had a protocol in place um, that had been set up already. Um, basically, if you know, from Brutus to Cassius. if mom's heart rate gets above 260, or she's having these symptoms, you dial 911. You turn up the oxygen to this percentage, you open up her fluids wide open. I mean there was this whole thing that this whole thing that we did and he did everything right and by the time the EMTs got there, um, they were able to stabilize me. And um, and the reason they were able to stabilize me is because basically Cassius ran a code by himself at eight, basically.
0: That's on his mother. That's That's incredible. So you are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Today's a special show. We're not going to have the great guest giveaway. We often don't have the great guest giveaway. And I'm not going to do stories from the road, because today's story is the biggest story there is to tell. Um, I'm going to return to my guest now for the last few minutes. Thank you for being on this journey uh, Incredible information and great sharing. So, Rochelle, I have two questions. Okay. So you've, you've gone through all this, the coding and all that. Now, you've said a couple of things over and over in your storytelling. One is, you can't die now. You can't let go. Um, it, you're you're speaking the way that people often speak about death after someone dies. Oh, they hung on for such a length of time, and it's an interesting interesting dynamic to hear it from the person who's doing the grappling with the fighting with the grim reaper as it were um for you to use the same language it really sort of hammers home they're to some degree not totally obviously but to some degree you have some control over those seconds or moments or those those pivotal choices that's fascinating Um, and, and... I, I
1: don't know how, and as an ICU nurse, I don't know. The only thing I can say, because you have to understand that, that first year I was big, so I went from 240 to 91 pounds in a year, so I lived off of my extra weight, I think. But there was an extra, there was an added year that I hung at, I, I, I went from 91 pounds to 73 pounds. Um, bet- that was from 2011 to 2012. And in 2012, Mayo Clinic finally took my case and, um, when they took my case and this was a little bit interesting, they, uh, it took them all of about 30 minutes to figure out what was wrong, which was kind of a slap in the face. Cause I'd been suffering right. for so long, but at the right. same time I was like super excited Um, and they're like, well, you have a 0% chance of surviving this surgery and you have a 0% chance of surviving on no nutrition. So it's up to you. If you want us to go in and try to flip that limb of bowel around, we will. And I said, at this point, I was, I was still not ready to go. I was still not ready to let go, but it was my only shot at night. I knew eventually I was, eventually I was going to code and they weren't going to be able to bring me back. Right. And I still, again, was not ready to let it go. And I just didn't want to say goodbye to my little boy. When my little boy was born, I looked at his little face, and I promised him that I would never leave him. And I just, I had the means. I had the means at that point, at any point, um, during that last six months I was on hospice. I had the means to euthanize myself and I had already said all of my goodbyes and I had had a party and said goodbye to everybody and I wanted to die with a little bit of dignity because at that point I was so ill that every time the ventilator would make me breathe, my ribs were cracking and every time my boys had to turn me in the bed my bones would fracture, and I had a a a, a, a bed sore, a, a bed ulcer um, on my sacrum that actually was so deep that it went all the way to my sacral bone. Um And so they had to turn me every two hours, and every time they turned me, I was so malnourished and so sick that my bones would fracture. And I was in more pain than I can even... I, like, even today, when I try to remember, when I go back in my mind, our brains are amazing. We can remember being in a lot of pain, but our brains don't remember what it feels like. Mm-hmm. I just remember being in more pain than I can even imagine. And they had me on so much medication, they just couldn't give me any more. It, it it just, I'd, I'd been on it for so long. And I was ready. I was so ready to go. And I had the means. I had the oh, means. And every time I tried... I could not bring myself to do it because I, I could not, I could not rob my child of five minutes. I figured if I am suffering and, and he buys me five more minutes with him, then, then, then it's worth it. And so I could not do it. And so that's, um, part of the reason why when I, I called Mayo Clinic and they turned my case down numerous times because I was, considered a hopeless cause. I was a hospice patient.
0: And when I called Mayo Clinic, I hair. when
1: I when I called Mayo Clinic, I talked to somebody and t- who talked to somebody and then I talked to the right person. I just and I told them, "Listen, I have the means to euthanize myself. If you guys don't take my case, I'm going to have to do it because I have been on hospice now at this point for 28 months. And I'm tired and I'm hurting and my bones are fracturing every time my boys have to turn me. Please help me. And finally, I don't know how, but they they got me in. And in March of 2012, they did the surgery Um, exactly um, a little over two years um, from Mm -hmm. when they had admitted me. And then they kept me in a hospice state Um, basically post-op, because I was in their ICU for a long time, a long, long time. I was very, very sick. So,
0: Rochelle, I'm sorry, but we are out of time, and I really want to hear one last. So just where are you at now? Yeah.
1: So after Mayo Clinic surgery, I was able to tolerate the tube feeds, and I have... um, been doing a lot of uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, just trying to rebuild what muscles I've got, my heart popped, my heart and liver, um, came like got happy again and started working again. my kidneys some of my kidney function returned, not all of it, um, and everything was going better. I was getting better until about six months ago, um, when I stopped suddenly I wasn't able to eat again. Um, very similar to before, my uh, GI team started looking around and they diagnosed me um, with Crohn's disease, which was a new diagnosis. The problem is not necessarily having Crohn's disease, but having Crohn's disease and having the history of the, the type of lymphoma that I have because the medications they use to treat Crohn's disease tend to cause lymphoma. So you can't really treat one without the other. So the only other option for us at the time was to put me on a really high dose of steroids. Well, because of everything my body has already been through, they put me on a really high dose of steroids in June. And in June, um, the steroids put me back in heart failure. So I don't know if it sounds funny or if I'm talking funny, but every few minutes I have to stop and take a breath because I'm, I'm on oxygen right now. But I... Um, I, uh, we found out a couple weeks ago that uh, the steroids are rapidly destroying my heart. And so we came up with a, um, we, we have to change direction because at the rate we're going, my heart's not going to hang up, hang, hang in there for another six to 12 months, according to cardiology. Um, so the plan was either we do nothing and kind of let things be and just kind of let things just see how it rides out because my case is so weird. Uh, Continue with the steroids and definitely die. Um, Or um, my doctors came up with a third option, which was treat both cancer, which I don't have right now, and Crohn simultaneously. There are a few drugs that will suppress my immune system enough so that I should not have any problem with either. The problem is that these drugs our chemotherapy drugs and um, I will need to live on them indefinitely. I'm basically trading my liver or what's left of my liver for my heart. So what's going to happen is we're going to do basically biweekly chemotherapy um, until I die. Um, That's the plan. Um, It sounds like a crazy plan, but it buys me more time with cash. And, um, it should buy me um, a couple of years. Granted, they will be very sick years because I will be getting chemo every other week. The way I, I I couldn't do indefinite chemo. Indefinite chemo. The thing with chemotherapy is you always have a number to count down from, and then you celebrate. Like eight treatments left, six right. treatments left. Right. Indefinite chemo felt too huge. So I looked at the calendar and I mapped it out and based on the day when we are starting chemo, which is next week, I have hundred and forty eight biweekly chemo therapy um, infusions. attention is eighteen years of age. I still to this day do not feel like I can let go and and know that that cash will be okay i I admire you. need to know I, I, I need to know before I let go, before I go, that Cassius will be okay. Cassius and Brutus' relationship right now is a little better, but it's rocky. It's rocky at best, and there's not a lot of acceptance on Brutus' part as, as far as the neurodiversity stuff goes, and I need to know that Cassius is going to be okay. And with the options and the behaviors and the things that I've observed, unfortunately, that is just not the case. And there are no other options at this point um, that are good, basically, other than me hanging in there as long as I can. You know, um, the biggest problem is going to be infection because they're going to completely wipe out my immune system. So if I can avoid infection, they think my liver might hang in there for a couple of years, but I'm shooting for 148 because I'm shooting for that for
0: you, too. We're all shooting. In fact, everybody, please shoot with her. All
1: right. Yeah, 148 is my magic number. Um, next week will be uh, number 148, and I will start counting down. Um, I'm choosing to look at this as an opportunity, an opportunity to buy myself more time an opportunity to have 148 weeks without chemo because it's biweekly, so 148 weeks without chemo. I'm choosing to look at this as a blessing on top of a blessing on top of a blessing because I should have died a long time ago. So I've gotten all this extra time, and now I'm getting more. And you really can't ask for more than this. Oh, my
0: gosh. Okay, no. You don't say another word. Everybody, you really can't ask for more than that. You already have time. Please embrace your children. Enjoy your time.
1: And the thing is, enjoy your air. I have not really ever appreciated oxygen until I wasn't able to absorb it. And now at $15 a bottle... (laughs) a it, to cost? You think smoking is an, is, a, is an expensive habit? Try breathing oxygen. It's $15 a bottle. I'm telling you, enjoy every breath, especially if you're young. If you are young, you need to enjoy your life and do everything you want to do. If you want to go to Costa Rica, go to Costa Rica. If you want to go to school, go to school. Do not spend all of your time working and going to school and not having any fun because what happens is you you're not promised you're not promised to ever have the time to enjoy it later. We always say, oh, you know, I'm gonna right. get right. my career you're out of the way and then I'm gonna either. go do this, that, and the other. And you're not promised that. So do all the things you want to do, and you know, everybody says, everybody asks me about what do I think about the concept of living like you're dying. And I, you know, there's a country song about it, and it's really emotional. I think to myself, that's total crap. I don't want to live like I'm dying. I want to die like I'm living. I want to die like I have an infinite amount of days, an infinite, and and, and I want each one to be better than the one before. I want to be a better person tomorrow than I am today. And I don't want to live like I'm dying I want to die like I'm living and that's my well, that's... plan that's my plan right now and if there's one thing that I would like everybody to do is appreciate every moment because they're just so precious and when you don't it's easy to get lost in you know getting frustrated with our children but focus on the good and focus on enjoying enjoying them and you know with autism little things you get to celebrate that other parents don't get to celebrate so celebrate the heck out of them i mean really really enjoy your kids and and focus on their strengths build up their we- their weaknesses and enjoy them because they're amazing
0: they're and amazing. they
1: can accomplish things like being eight and taking care of an ICU level patient independently.
0: Yeah, Our kids pretty, are capable
1: of more than we can than we ever give them credit for. Yeah, and we don't nice. ever want them to have to go through anything like this. But when they do, they they're so strong.
0: Rachel Rochelle that was amazing. I, I thank you so much for your time. Um I almost cried so many times. I I just uh, admire and love you and and wow. Um I'm just going to keep remember, reminding everyone to try and send energy away. Um obviously if you can float on the ceiling, you can pick up some of our intentional energy and we're going
1: Absolutely. Try and,
0: yeah, we're going to try and keep you there. Um, and
1: if they right. want, if anybody wants to follow our journey, I'm going to be, you know, our website is uh, mypuzzlingpiece.com, and I, um, you know, I write a lot. I write very real, and there's a lot of there's a lot of funny stories on there, and a lot of good stories and bad stories, and um, that is what um, I'm that is what I'm spending my time doing when I'm, you know, in the hospital. I'm advocating for the future of our of our um, autistic community and it's something i'm passionate about all right people
0: we have we have to join rochelle in her journey keep the energy flowing positive alive and real and please read 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 her stuff be a part of her her life. She needs a a lot of support. Let's. You said you don't have much family support. Well, we're going to be your family. We're going to be your support. Everybody, yeah, I gotta maybe. go. I'm so sorry. We're out of time. Um, maybe and hopefully we will talk to you again down the road.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have okay. like I have a lot of stories I could share and um, okay. and I would be honored to do so.
0: Okay, all right. I gotta go. Thank you.
1: Thank you so very much.
0: Okay. Bye. Be well today.
1: Okay. Thank you. Bye.
0: I'm I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain
1: Broad.
0: And if you'd love to help me help other people, please go to Indiegogo and look up Fix It in Five Israel. Help me get out to Israel and change a family's life. and here yeah. you